a conversation about the legal issues that matter to you. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. So one of the things that has been just a huge hot topic recently in the law is law and religion. And you see these very high-profile cases uh, things like, for example, the contraceptive mandate, should employers have to get, provide certain contraceptives to their workers, or Masterpiece Cake Shop, should a bake shop be allowed to refuse to make wedding cakes for same-sex couples or the like. And I think that's a tip of an iceberg, and maybe not even the tip of a real iceberg, but its own separate iceberg, because there's so many other ways in which the law affects people's ability to practice their religions, and which people have claims of religious liberty. That's right, Pam. And I might note that I interviewed you and Jeff Fisher on Masterpiece Cake. But today we're going to look at more ordinary and common ways in which religion and the law seem to clash, or at least where the law has to step in to help people exercise their religious rights. And we're incredibly fortunate today to have with us Jim Sani. Jim is a head of Stanford's Religious Law Clinic. He's a graduate of Harvard, but has been with us for about six years now. And we're so happy to have you at the law school, Jim, and on Stanford Legal. And we're especially lucky today to have, as we've several times have had on the show in the past, one of the students from Stanford Law School as well as an instructor. And the student who's joining us today is Liz Klein. Liz is a third-year student at the law school. She's an advanced student in the Religious Liberty Clinic this quarter, but she also was a full-time student in the Religious Liberty Clinic last year. So she's been really immersed in these issues as well. So thank you both so much for coming to the show. Thank Our you. Pleasure. It's great to be here. So let me start you off just by asking you to give our listeners a sense of the breadth of cases that you do in the clinic. We do generally three types of legal issues. We focus on three. They're generally in the employment context, the prison context, and land use context. Now, there are a few reasons for that. One is, as a law clinic, our chief goal is to teach students how to be first-rate lawyers, to engage questions at a deep level, but also at a very practical level. So they learn not only the techniques, but also the important professional lessons of representing real clients in real disputes. The choice of those areas, I think, offers that opportunity for students, and it does so across the board. So regardless of their religious perspective or background or their political leanings, they are attracted, I think, to our clinic for the real human dimension that we offer them and the opportunity to and, work and in those And you've had areas. an incredibly diverse slate, both of clients and of students in the clinic, and I just was stunned by the breadth. That is, even though you're focusing on three areas, huge numbers of different kinds of religious practices get involved. How does religion affect people's ability to engage in to engage in employment? How does it affect their lives if they're incarcerated? How does it affect land use decisions? Sure. It has a, a range of effects in all those areas. And I think once you do all those areas, you see the common thread really is humanity. For example, in the employment arena, you may have uh, religious accommodation issues involving the Sabbath, observance of the Sabbath. Seventh-day Adventists, for example, observe a Saturday Sabbath. So they have a lot of issues in terms of their ability to abstain from work. 
on Saturday. We also had a high-profile case for Sikh truck drivers who refused to remove hair from their beard for drug testing. Uh, they offered fingernail testing instead, and some of them were out of work for almost a year. So that's because Sikhs don't shave off their beards. Is that's that... right. One of their five sacred beliefs is unshorn hair. So they refused, although offered an alternative. In the land use area, we represented a homeless ministry, which viewed all the members of the community as members of their church, and they welcomed the homeless into their sanctuary for, for worship, as well as meals and clothing and other other things, but uh, some neighbors objected, and there was a dispute over that. In the prison context, we have religious accommodation in terms of grooming, meals, kosher meals, access to chapel, a whole range of things that in the end, once you put it all together, you really see it's people really trying to figure out who they are, um, what their meaning is in life, where they're heading. Um, it's a very much more accessible area of, of law and practice for our students than one might expect if you just looked at it through a religious lens. Well, why don't we jump into one of these cases? And Liz, you've been handling, I think, one of the cases Jim's mentioned. Tell us about the case. Sure. So my primary project in the clinic has been this employment discrimination case. Our client is a Seventh-day Adventist, which means, among other things, that she observes a Saturday Sabbath by abstaining from secular work. Uh, and she has worked for her employer, a pharmacy, for over 20 years and never ran into any problems observing her Sabbath until her store unionized. And under the union contract, the jobs in the store were restructured so that three new full-time jobs were available which were to be assigned on the basis of seniority. And she had the seniority to get one of those jobs. But the employer interpreted another provision of the union contract to require what they call open availability, meaning you must have no scheduling conflicts at all in order to be assigned one of the full-time jobs. Uh, and, of course, she had a scheduling conflict because she observes the Sabbath. And she'd been working there for 20 years, though, and they'd been able to accommodate her without even knowing there was a law at stake, my guess, for, the, for all that time. That's right. And, you know, as often turns out to be the case when these kind of disputes arise— the issue with her employer was not necessarily about animus or outright hostility to her practices. It was just that when this new union context came about, they believed there was an obstacle to giving her the full-time job. And, and what do you do as a clinic? What's the legal hook for that? It sounds like I think our listeners are going to say, well, they ought to be flexible and, and not do this to her. What does the law say? So the district court in this case granted summary judgment for the employer on the theory that they reasonably accommodated her by giving her a part-time job instead of the full-time job that she had earned by her seniority. But we argued in the Ninth Circuit two things. One, that it was uh, discrimination under federal and state employment discrimination law for her employer to deny her an available job on the basis that she observes the Sabbath. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with our guests Jim Sani and Liz Klein from the Stanford Religious Liberty Clinic about how law and free exercise of religion interact. 
So, Liz, I want to follow up on the arguments you make to the Ninth Circuit. So a district court says it's reasonable accommodation, and you say, no, it isn't. Tell us a little bit about what these laws are. This isn't the First Amendment, which people have heard. It guarantees the free exercise of religion. This is some other law. That's right. This is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which provides that employers can't discriminate in employment on a number of bases, including religion. And pertinently in this case, the statutory definition of religion is a little bit unusual because it incorporates an obligation for employers to reasonably accommodate their employees' religious practices, as well as respecting their religious identities and beliefs. So it all hinges on what's reasonable. That's right. That's one of the things that's so interesting, I think, about the part of Title VII that deals with religious discrimination as opposed to, for example, gender discrimination or race discrimination where there isn't an accommodation provision. What are the kinds of accommodations that employers have been ordered to make under the religious religious accommodation provision? Well, c- certainly uh, Sabbath accommodation is relatively – a straightforward and common one. In fact, the statute in California singles out Sabbath accommodation by name. There are also, as I mentioned before, grooming standards or dress accommodation. And I think the law in Title VII really is recognizing that religion is different in that it involves not just identity but also action. Now, certainly to the extent that it's an unreasonable request or would cause some sort of hardship to the employer, it's a balancing but really it's that recognition that there's something about religion that's not just like other categories, that it actually involves action. What requests lose? I mean, the, the Sabbath request seems kind of a no-brainer. What's an example of something that really pushes the boundaries and and isn't going to win or might not win? To the extent that it would cause some sort of significant hardship to the employer. Uh, so, for example, uh, if the... There was no alternative but to give hair for drug tests for truck drivers, for example. It's important to note in a lot of our cases, there are reasonable arguments on the other side. What we are arguing typically for our clients is, is there a way? Can you make room? Is it possible to recognize the dignity of your workers while still achieving whatever other goal, a legitimate goal uh, that you may have as an employer in running a business, in operating a prison in our prison work, in managing uh, zoning rules, et cetera. They're always good arguments usually, uh, but uh, the question is, can they be achieved in a way that respects our clients? So, So one thing that you sometimes hear is that the employer can accommodate the religious belief, but it imposes some cost on other workers. So for example, if you have a worker who says, I can't work on my Sabbath, which is Saturday. Some other worker has to be there and do the job then. How do, how do we balance or how do we think about balancing the interests of the other worker who says, well, it's not my religion, but that's the day that my spouse has off. And if we don't get to spend that day together, that's a hardship on me. How does the law think about those kinds of issues? That that very much comes up in this particular case. And um, I think part of the answer is that it depends on it depends what kind of uh, imposition the request represents on the other employees on the coworkers. Um, and a, a case that comes up for us 
in this uh, case that we have in the Ninth Circuit is a Supreme Court case called Transworld Airlines versus Hardison, which said essentially that uh, it was unreasonable to bump more senior co-workers who were entitled to their shift preferences in order to grant a, a Sabbath observant employee uh, who was more junior to them his shift preference. But in that case, the uh, there were seniority rights uh, in question. And, uh, you know, it's it's it may be uncomfortable to be in the position of, you know, asserting that that my religious rights should take precedence over someone else's, you know, other scheduling issues that are perfectly reasonable. Um, but but Title VII does give special protection uh, to to religion, and so those can sometimes trump. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Liz Klein and Jim Sani from the Stanford Religious Liberty Clinic about free exercise and legal rights. Liz, what I want to now focus on your experience as a student What's gripping about this work for you? The underlying issues in these cases really get to people's core identities uh, and what what drives them and what motivates them in the world in a way that is really fascinating on just a, a human drama level. But additionally, the the litigation experience in the clinic um, absolutely translates to other contexts. Um, my my plans for after law school, I, I don't plan to um, practice in this area in the future. Um, but, you know, often, as Professor Sani is quick to remind us, um, what we're dealing with, the issues that we're litigating are not necessarily, uh, you know, big issues of conscience in the First Amendment. They're often, you know, the summary judgment standard or um, exhaustion of administrative remedies and things like that, which absolutely translate to other areas of substantive law. And what are you going to practice? Uh, I hope to do uh, indigent defense work after graduating. Uh-huh. And and I think you want to do ap- appeals, right? That's and right. so what was it like? You argued this case in the Ninth Circuit, right? What uh, I wrote like? the briefing in this case, uh, and it's scheduled for argument next quarter. So and will you be arguing crossed. it? We'll have two new full-time students in the winter arguing. Did you get? Have you gotten to argue or appear in court? No, not yet. Nervous about it a little. <laughs> <laughs> but Liz was part of a team that helped prepare two students last uh, winter That's in right. a prison uh, case that we prevailed in the Ninth Circuit on, uh, and involving exhaustion administrative remedies. Uh, did a fantastic job on that. So when you when you think about when you think about what's the thing you're taking away from this clinic that you think will most affect your work going forward, what do you think that'll be? A couple of things come to mind. Um, one thing that is uh, very sharply presented in the religious liberty context uh, is communicating across cultural difference, which of course is very, very relevant in the indigent defense context as well. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's a student coming from a non-religious background who doesn't understand what Sabbath observance, for example, means to the client, or whether it's a student coming from a different religious background who has a different understanding of what Sabbath observance means, um, both those students face, you know, very interesting challenges that we discussed extensively uh, in the clinic. Uh, so that's that's one important thing that I'll that I'll take away. 
I imagine you'd learn a, a lot about religion. Definitely. Definitely. We uh, represent clients from a wide variety of backgrounds. Uh, and uh, also uh, in the clinic, we uh, at one point in the quarter, we each do a, a presentation to our fellow students on an unusual or uh, minority religious tradition that they might not be familiar with. And so, what was yours? Uh, I looked at a group called the Hebrew Israelites, uh, which is a, a sort of a, a non-mainstream uh, Jewish denomination. <laughs> I didn't even know what to say. No, being of a very mainstream Jewish denomination, what are, what do they what what are their special practices or beliefs? Uh, they practice a lot of uh, traditional uh, Old Testament practices. Um, they don't, as I understand, uh, view themselves as Jewish in the mainstream sense, um, but as sort of descended from. Uh, different uh, lost tribes. Uh, we will have more with our guests, Liz Klein and Jim Sani uh, from the Stanford Li- Religious Liberty Clinic, uh, next on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. Answers for the legal questions you've been thinking about. This is Stanford Legal. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. And today we're talking with Liz Klein and Jim Sani from the Stanford Religious Liberty Clinic about uh, free exercise and legal protections for free exercise. And, you know, those of you who know about the Olympics know about the biathlon. It's, Hmm. you know, you ski for a while and then you shoot. And it's a kind of odd amalgam of two sports that you don't usually think of as being connected. And the statute I wanted to talk about with you in the second part of the program is kind of like a legal biathlon statute. It's the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. It's a federal statute called RELUPA by everybody because otherwise you take up all your time with just <laughs> the name of it. And it protects religious observance and free exercise in two contexts. Institutionalized persons, which is, I think, a long-winded way of essentially saying people in jail and prison, uh, and land use. So, Jim, could you tell us a little bit about that statute? Sure. It's interesting. It's a statute that came about uh, through a very a various staged uh, debate in, in the Supreme Court in terms of what level of protection do religious believers have or what level of accommodation do religious believers have when they uh, object to or otherwise cannot fulfill some legal obligation. Uh, the, deci- the sort of seminal decision is the Smith case involving whether or not there is a First Amendment exception to a prohibition on the use of peyote. Um, and the Supreme Court essentially said, no, there's not a constitutional uh, right to an exemption. And that was for um, Native Americans who wanted to use peyote in a religious ceremony, right? That's, r- that's right. And Excuse using yes. peyote is illegal. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, so the question then becomes, okay, well, what level of – notwithstanding the fact there is no global exemption, you still have protection against discrimination or other forms of – of violations of First Amendment rights. Uh, But Congress then responded saying, well, we think it's really important that there be an exemption or at least some level of accommodation to general rules or general laws. And so they passed RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is in the news a lot lately and, in some of the cases you mentioned. And if I could stop you there, one of the things that was interesting is that law was passed like, what, 98 to nothing or something like that in the, right. in the Senate? I mean, not a controversial law, however controversial some of these issues have become. Right. It was passed in 1990. President Clinton uh, signed it. 
um, to great fanfare and offering this uh, protection uh, for religious uh, accommodation. Uh, the Supreme Court then pared that back um, a few years later um, and said that Congress had out has overstepped its bounds in terms of applying that exception to the to state laws. Uh, so RIFRA survives for federal law. So that's where you get – you describe the contraceptive mandate and other federal uh, laws where uh, religious liberty issues still arise in a constitutional realm. Um, but from a statutory perspective, uh, Congress then responded to uh, the city of Bernie case by passing RELUPA. And essentially it was a for a combination of – Jurisdictional and other reasons and political reasons, they were essentially able to agree to two relatively or seemingly narrow areas of protection, land use um, and, and institutionalized persons, namely prisoners. Um, and it was, once again, an, an interesting story of compromise uh, and consensus in this field. So, Jim, take us to a prisoner case that, that the clinic has done. Uh, sure, we've done a series of prisoner cases. Uh, our first, and most recently was the the win of the Ninth Circuit uh, for an inmate. Um, our probably our most interesting uh, uh, free exercise Rulupa case for an inmate was our first case. It was a circumcision case of all things. Um, it involved an inmate who uh, was born in Cuba. His parents, he was Jewish. His parents hid their faith, however, for fear of perse religious persecution. Uh, he ended up in prison years later in Florida, um, uh, got to be close with the rabbi, the chaplain there at the prison, um, and longed to come back to his faith of origin. And so he asked for a circumcision. Uh, now the prison immediately said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, it's too dangerous and we're not going to allow that accommodation. But our clinic got involved. Uh, and was able to persuade the state to relent. We flew a moil in from Brooklyn, um, and our client is right with his God. And what's really interesting, I think, about that, about the reason I raised that as, as an interesting challenge is it's a seemingly obscure, seemingly controversial, or at least controversial in terms of the prison setting request. It's somewhat strange, perhaps, to, to, to some. Uh, so it was a great challenge for our students to be able to tell the client's story, why it was so important for our client that he viewed himself as cut off uh, from God if he did not have this procedure. And so it was really a, an important thing to be able to tell that story, to engage in cross-cultural lawyering, as Liz mentioned. It was a great challenge and a great victory. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking about free exercise issues uh, with two of our colleagues from the Stanford Religious Liberty Clinic, Liz Klein and Jim Sani. Joe? Well, it's a it's a amazing story which we just heard, Jim, and, and I'm thinking anybody's serious enough about their faith to undergo a circumcision as an adult. Well, that says it all. We ought to make that happen for them. I, I wonder if in our remaining time we could talk about the land use cases. People think land use well that doesn't have anything to do with religion, but I guess the setting is a church is your neighbor. And they want to do something that otherwise maybe zoning wouldn't allow. Is that right? Sure. That's generally where it comes up. Uh, and there are two types of challenges. And even behind the passing of the statute, there was a concern about tax revenue. Uh, so uh, churches and religious uh, houses of worship are tax exempt. Um, so that's one issue. Um, there also, though, can also be a hostility to the religious practice. And, and we certainly see that. Um, in terms of uh, the Muslim clients that we represent. Um, we've been representing a mosque uh, here in the area for years trying to get a mosque built. 
Um, and um, we hope that that will uh, result favorably, uh, but a lot of challenges they face from from neighbors and from others who may have legitimate concerns, but also there can oftentimes be Islamophobia creeping in. Tell us about that case. Why why won't people allow the mosque to be built? Well, there, as I say, there are a variety of what we would say are reasonable objections yeah. in terms of environmental protection rules, um, zoning rules that, that otherwise anyone else would have to abide by. Um, and that's fine. The mosque is certainly willing to, to check all the boxes and then some um, do environmental impact studies, do all the things that they would as responsible uh, neighbors. Um, but in the background, I think, uh, particularly from some members of the community, there's a, there are um, at least sort of whispers and other and sometimes just outright statements at public hearings against them. Um, we're, we've been able to work with um, with the municipality uh, well, uh, but it's still something that we always want to keep our eye out. And it's a problem across the country in terms of Muslim communities trying to build houses of worship. So one of the things that's interesting is I think for people who are members of majority religions, they often don't think that they need accommodations and they don't understand the reason for that. But that's, of course, because the law already accommodates them. So if you're a Sunday Sabbath observer, well, everybody has always been given Sundays off or given Christmas Day off or the like. And so is is this particular problem here that as America becomes more diverse, there are more and more minority religions that have slightly different beliefs and different practices than the majority? Is that what creates the need for a clinic like yours? I think that's certainly true that the religious liberty has always been a protection of a minority view of some kind, uh, that there's not necessarily a need for constitutional or statutory protection of views that otherwise are accepted within the mainstream. Uh, that's true of constitutional protections generally, the Bill of Rights generally, if you think of free speech, right? It's protecting those who would have uh, to have a take or something, want to say something that's contrary to the to the majority. So that's certainly true. The rise of religious pluralism and diversity is something that it's particularly important um, that we pay attention to these. Uh, maybe they're not high profile cases, but they're deeply important to communities, to our clients. Uh, and many times, even though the more high profile cases, they get the attention, uh, but they shouldn't be overwhelmed the fact that you know, the things that we work with in our clinic are really things that are really important to, to those of faith, particularly those of, in minority communities. So this, is, this raises this interesting issue, which I think has kind of permeated our discussion today, which is on the one hand, um, these are minority religions. On the other hand, they're actually able to rely on a statute passed by a majority that gives them more protection, in a sense, than the Constitution would have given them. That is the Smith case that you talked about and the City of Bernie case that you talked about, where the Supreme Court's saying, we're not going to give huge amounts of protection to religious minorities, and yet they're able to use a statute that was passed with an overwhelming consensus to take us uh, to give us more religious freedom than we would have gotten otherwise. And so it's just kind of interesting thing to think about. I want to thank you, Jim, for being on the show. And thank you, Liz. And ask Jim if you just have a couple of last words. Sure. Just to pick up on uh, what you're saying, Pam, I think that's true that the support across the board, why did that happen? I think it happened because there was a recognition in all of us, in all human beings, that we all have that uh, craving. We crave meaning and an understanding and a mutual respect. 
um, and and that it's really way more about who we are as human beings than who God is or what our particular preferences are in choosing it. There's a recognition across the board of uh, a, a commonality, a common humanity. I think we, you see that in our work. So thanks for joining us today here on Stanford Legal, here on Sirius XM Insight 121. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online or with the Sirius XM app.